We are in the book of Revelation or the prophecy of the Revelation. We're in chapter 3 and verse 11. He says, I am coming quickly. Hold firm what you have so that no one will take your crown. The Lord's thinking here is, and for everything he says, and for these churches is the things that are. They apply from his time he spoke and ascended to heaven until he returns as a Lord of Lords and Kings of Kings and sets up the millennium. So the Lord's timing is different from ours. One day he will end what we call the church age or the age of grace. He will end it by his rapture to some, the second coming. Some people differ on it. And Acts, the apostles were interested to know about Israel's restoration. Remember, they were almost fanatics about the national identity, and they had for years been put under the Roman control, and the Romans controlled everything. So they thought their Messiah would come and overthrow the Romans and set up the kingdom, what we call the millennium. They were wrong at this. And so the apostles themselves ask him, See, when he raises from the dead and comes back, certain things didn't happen that they thought should happen. Why hasn't he overthrown the Romans? So in Acts, the apostles were interested to know about Israel's restoration. But it would be 2,000 years or so in the future, but he would tell them something. What would he tell them? He said in Acts chapter 1, 6 through 8, Therefore, when they come together, they ask him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. So their timing is off. Remember, there are certain things that Jesus did tell them, and he said, you cannot bear them now. They're too hard for you. And one of them was this time of the restoration, very important to them, of Israel. And they sort of really didn't have a full concept that the Gentiles were going to be invited and were going to be in the new order, the new covenant. See, they strictly thought it was going to be Jewish still. And they could not accept these things. And the Spirit did not lighten them. And the Lord didn't want them to know while he was on earth. So he said, when the Spirit comes, he said, he will guide you into all truths. So, see, he'll tell you these things. And it's interesting, after Pentecost, and when the Spirit came on them, you never hear the disciples mention the restoration of Israel and they still had a hard time. It took them six to eight years to start preaching to the Gentiles. But the Spirit finally enlightened them on this. So there were other things that he said, it's better for you that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Spirit won't come. And I'm with you presently, but I'm here to fulfill certain obligations. But when I come to you later, he said, I will be in you. I will be the Spirit, actually. He will come to them, and he says, I will reveal all truth to you. I've heard people tell me, well, I only listen to the words of Jesus. Well, then you are false and immature. 
because he said the apostolic foundation and Jesus is the cornerstone takes precedent over everything he did on earth. It reveals more. It shows us more. Even Jesus said the church as a whole will do greater things than he could. He was limited to his body. He couldn't go out to the world. He couldn't preach to the Gentiles because that was not his calling. But after he gave up his life, he could send forth his spirit. It's the spirit of Christ. And he would do these greater things and reach lots of more people than he ever could do. And he could indwell the believer as a temple, which he never did while he was on the earth. So it's not for you to know the times and seasons, he says. They were looking for, again, the Messiah to overthrow the Roman government. This was not going to happen. Actually, for the next 100, 200 years, they had a couple more rebellions of Jews against the Roman Empire, and they were finally subdued. And actually, 100 years or so after the destruction of Jerusalem, They provoked the Romans so much that the Jews were forbidden to enter Jerusalem. So he was letting it be known that this is not the time, see? And the apostles weren't going to be around anyway, so he didn't need to explain to them what was going to happen. Now, when they got filled with the Spirit, they were enlightened. They understood, oh, it's the church age. There is neither special Jew or Gentile. It's to whomsoever shall come. And only when the Lord returns and sets up the kingdom of Israel, this is we call the millennium, the church age ends as we know it. They will be gone. Any true Christians will be removed. And he goes back to dealing with Israel as the chief among the nations for a period of time until the world rebels against him. So we're seeing it's the gospel of grace to the Gentile world that he was interested in. And even then, as I said, it took them six or eight years before they obeyed this. And Peter was the first to open the door to the Gentile as he was the one, the first preach at Pentecost after the message to the Jews. This is what it means when Jesus said, I will give you the keys to the kingdom to open doors. That's the keys for. It didn't mean popery. It didn't mean I'm making you the chief leader over everybody. You did not find this in the early church. They were in agreement. Any major decisions, even James had a say-so, and he was not one of the original 12. And so when Paul, when they were disputing trying to find out what to do with Paul and his teachings to the Gentiles, they all came into agreement and felt the Spirit was guiding him. There was no difference. So as long as they were together, every question that was controversial for the whole church, it went to the apostles and elders. They didn't go even later to Paul. He built on it. He expanded on it. But he himself said, I had to submit myself. And he, I went to Jerusalem, and he said, unless I ran in vain. He means they could have spoken against him, and his ministry would have been delayed quite a bit. And it was the Lord himself that said, go down to Jerusalem and get their approval. They are the foundation layer, and you will build on this foundation. And he built a lot greater than any of the other ones did. But he was not of the foundation. 
people try to make him that, often because they want to elevate Paul's teachings and perversions of Paul's teachings, this faith and grace alone and, and nonsense. And Peter warned us. He said, the writings of our brother Paul, and he called them scripture, are hard to understand. And he told them that many stumble at them to their own destruction. He was having a problem then with people twisting what Paul was teaching. So it hasn't stopped. It won't stop. The devil just keeps doing the same thing that works to deceive people. And so we see then they obeyed and went to the Gentiles eventually. And after 40 years, uh, there would be no temple and there would be no Pharisaical or Sadducees system going. The Romans would destroy it under Titus in around 70 AD. So the gospel was mainly, if you want numbers, was to the Gentile world. By the time John is writing this revelation, the majority of real Christians in the world are Gentiles, and it's getting less and less Jews. So Paul did make it a point to go to Jewish synagogues two or three times, but he did say at one point, when they kept rejecting me, he says, will you judge yourselves unworthy of the kingdom? Now I go to the Gentiles. He was at a time period because, again, 8% of the Roman Empire was Jews. and But we do not find too much emphasis on going to the Jew first after the period of the apostles and John. You mainly see it with Paul. And like we say, the Jews... Often themselves, they had a hard time with this. They were proud of being a special people, and they found out they were not special anymore, that God cut their system off and their temple because they were consistently rebellious to him over many generations. And the Lord, through prophecy, said, though the children of Israel be as the stars of the heaven, only a remnant will be saved. doesn't say this of the church says this of Israel. So even those who were Jews under the covenant uh, from Moses on and so forth, most of them were not saved. They were disobedient. They were rebellious. Oh, they believed that Jehovah was their God. But like Jesus is going to tell most professing Christians, I never knew you. I don't know you. Okay. So mental belief doesn't mean anything if you don't put it into action. Okay, And so we see many, many years later, we're getting back to this scripture here, let no one take your crown. People ask about this often. What does it mean he is someone take your crown? So it means that Christians during this time and during all times, we have to be careful to not let anybody interfere with our love and duty to the Lord. Jesus said a hard word, even when he was preaching. If you don't love me more than your parents, your children, any relationship, he says you can't be mine. He said you can't be my disciple, and that means you cannot be a Christian. People don't understand that. So we have a lot of people who idolize their family and put their family, and you hear it from the church often, they'll say it's God first, then the family, then the church. That is no such thing. Scripture says it's God in everything. 
He is to be involved in everything. We have a duty to God. We are his bondservants. We are his disciples, and we obey him at all costs. Otherwise, we are going to be rejected. And see, people don't like that kind of Christianity. Well, many years I saw in a few experiences, how can a person let someone rob them of their crown? They can't take it from them. What happens is people let relationships interfere with what they're doing. And I've had experience in counseling people and years ago. I had a couple of good experiences and some bad ones. But I know one woman, she was witness to, and, and she verbally wanted to come to the Lord and serve him. And she proceeded this way for several weeks. And then she told her sister-in-law that she couldn't go into this religion anymore because my husband doesn't like it. And he likes me to go drinking with him and partying. And I have to make a choice. He said, you're going to be religious or we're going to keep our marriage together. Well, she chose him and many, many years went by and he died and she never came to the Lord. See, she was hardened during this process. She had made her decision. That is always the case, but it does happen. And I've known cases where uh, a young uh, woman, she was engaged to a guy and when she accepted the Lord and came to him, she had a great conflict because she, even at that young age, knew she had to make a decision. Her boyfriend didn't want to be religious. He didn't care what she did, but she knew that kind of marriage wouldn't work. And she told a group of people, and I was there, that she just, I don't know if she could give him up. And we prayed with her and said, if you're willing to do what God says, he'll strengthen you. She said, well, I don't feel it, but I'm willing. And as soon as she said she was willing, she was released from her love and bondage, and she couldn't believe it. It was an instant thing with her. And a year later, she found a good Christian man and married him. So there are consequences, and every person that comes to the Lord is tested. People who live their whole life as if everything is smooth and buttery, there are faults. Jesus is going to test our loyalty at different stages, and we have to overcome and endure to the end. So he's warning us here, don't let anyone rob you of your crown. The one who can easily rob you of your crown is the people you love the most. It's not your enemies. It's not outward things. It's family. And some family is not going to come to the Lord. You have these false teachers promising you that he'll save your family. There is no such teaching in Scripture. It's taken out of context. Jesus said, I've come to bring a sword and not peace, and I will set a man against his own family and his own house. So that's the price of following the Lord and being a disciple. We have to put Christ first. Anything else is idolatry. And he says, you cannot be my disciple. You can translate that. He cannot be my Christian child. If he's going to put these people before me, then he can't be mine. That's condition for coming to the Lord. Of course, it's not taught now. And so many people believe they're Christians. And when they're finally challenged, as Jesus said, they have no root in them. And he said they fall away when trial and temptation comes. Everyone is going to be tried and tested. 
There is no free trip for everybody. God sees to it that every Christian has to be tested and has to overcome in this life. People think they're exceptional, they're special. They're not. If they think they are, they've been deceived, and they're going to have a hard time continuing with the Lord. So let no one take our crown. Whatever the temptation, we don't do it. So our overall life is to follow the Lord and to serve him when we know it's him. One more example, I knew a Christian woman years ago, and her husband felt led to go to the mission field, and she just got her home established and everything, and well, she didn't like that. Uh, He said, well, I'm going. You're either going with me or you stay here. And she was about ready to stay there and let him go because he was determined to go. And then the Lord gave her a dream, a simple dream. And in the dream, the church was raptured. And everybody she saw, there were certain people around that started to go up into the air. And all of a sudden, she started rising. And she got so excited. And then she stopped dead in the middle of the air. And she looked down, and her leg, a rope was tied to it, and it was tied to her house. And she woke up immediately and said, I get the message, Lord. So she went with her husband. So he was just sort of warning her his way. You're going to let these things keep you from the Lord and keep you from the Lord if he comes. And so we have to understand where our duty lies. So much of false religion is what God can do for you alone, but you have a duty to God. See, people forget that. Well, it's all grace and faith, and it is not. We live under probation, and we're being tested to prove faithful, and then when we enter heaven, we'll never be tested again. All the angels were tested, and one-third of them fell, and now they're demons. Uh, Man is no exception. He must be proven his loyalty. God gives everything by grace and faith, but you're responsible for what he gives you. See, people think, oh, it's all free. Well, it is, but there's an obligation. If he makes himself Lord, that means you must obey him. He's not seeking to save people just to keep them out of hell. We don't see no scripture for that. He saves people to change and regenerate them and give them a purpose and desires the new man to serve the Lord. Then we have a conflict and we have to make decisions between the new and the old nature. And the Christian has to make the right decisions or eventually he's back in the world whether he knows it or not. He's in false religion. It don't matter what the mental religion is. If it's not in his life, it's false. So we have lots of people saying, Lord, Lord, and Jesus is not their Lord. And they're going to be surprised when they find this out when it's too late. So we're seeing, as we, before we go on, let no one take your crown. See? So the responsibility is on you. You're the one not to let them do it. See, they can't take it. The devil cannot do things to us without our consent on certain areas. We don't have to go down and defeat because we've been given the whole armor of Christ. But if we do not use the armor, we will go down and defeat. And that's what you find in Scripture, the appeal of the Scripture, of the Spirit, 
to the Christian to obey Scripture and to get help from the Holy Spirit, and that's how we overcome. If you try to do it on your own, you're not going to make it. And if you think God's going to do everything for you, you're going to be deceived. It's always the divine and the human joining together. That's where fruit comes from. Jesus is divine. Christians are the branches. There could be no fruit without both of them. So we need to understand this. Okay? So just because something's a free gift does not mean it's a license to sin with it. See, that's how some interpret that. Uh, they can do whatever they want because it's a free gift. Well, we've taught before in the parables that the king forgave. Somebody owed him a lot of money. And at first, he was to be sold, the king, and sell his children and everything to pay what he owed. And he begged and fell before the king, and the king felt sorry for him and forgave him everything. And immediately he went out, and someone owed him some money, a small amount, and did the same thing, asked him to bear with him, and he said no. So he made him sell his children or whatever it took. And the king called him back. So much for the free gift, huh? He says, you wicked servant. He said, I was kind and gracious to you, and you should have been the same. He said, therefore, take him and cast him out. So he retracted his gift. And Jesus, people think, oh, once he gives something, oh, no, Scripture talks about all prophecy. And Ezekiel says, if I determine to do good to you, by a prophetic word he was talking about, to a person or a nation, if you turn and sin and you be real against me, I will repent of the good that I intended to do you. And so I thought, and if I promise to judge you like he did with Nineveh, he didn't even give them a promise. He just told them in 40 days through Jonah, none of them will be destroyed. And not even given a promise that he wouldn't destroy them if they did something. Well, they on their own, the king and everybody decided to fast and pray. And they said, perhaps he'll hold off. Perhaps he'll forgive us. And they, they fasted. They sought the Lord. And the Lord postponed. He didn't judge that generation. It was almost 100 years later for none of them was judged. And, of course, the side story was Jonah got upset, and the Lord had to reprove him because these Ninevites hated Jews, the Jews hated them, and they did a lot of problems to the Israelites. And we don't know personally whether Jonah's family was killed or friend, but he didn't want them to be forgiven. He waited outside for God to still destroy them, and the Lord reproved him in his last communications with him for the hardness of his heart. But again, God changed his mind. They said, well, God does Oh, no, he, he, his principles do not change. He'll be good to a person and keeps his promises. But if they rebel against him, he's under no obligation to keep his promise to them, for they are not in the covenant anymore. And I've counseled many people years ago. They're trying to do something that doesn't apply. After 20 years, they've decided, I'm going to go to the mission field. And they go, and nothing works out, and the Lord doesn't talk to them. And they, well, I'm trying to obey you. And I said, but you need to go back to God. You missed God 20 years ago. That promise of prophecy is nullified. You have to go back to God and see what applies and what doesn't apply. But it was the word of the Lord. Yeah, but you counterfeited by your own actions, and you didn't understand Scripture. 
He already warned, if you don't obey me, then I'll change my mind concerning the good I tended to do you. So people need to know scripture. And they're claiming and jumping on prophecies that don't apply anymore. Maybe it applied one time. But sometimes, uh, I remember once in my life, many years ago, uh, I was told to warn someone through a prophetic word or dream, and I kept putting it off, and, put, and I didn't want to confront this person. And finally, I did. And I went to confront him, and the Lord said, you waste your time. And I said, what? He said, I already sent someone to him, and he's dealt with it. And I felt sort of reproved. See, it was too late. He decided, well, I need this done now, so I'll just find someone else to do it. And that's God's prerogative. He can reiterate a word to us, or he can change the word and say, well, that doesn't apply. We can miss God's best at certain times, and we have to pick up the second or third best. That's his will. The children of Israel and Jeremiah, when he was working with them and uh, he showed the prophet, they were like clay on the wheel. And it was marred in his hands. So he started a new lump. Originally, what he wanted to do for that generation, they did not obey and he judged them. So he started again. But that's God's prerogative. We cannot just decide after 40 years, I'm going to obey the Lord when I never obeyed him before on this issue, uh, you'll deceive yourself. See, that's not being led of the Spirit. And quoting Scripture and standing on the Bible and demanding him to bring forth his word will get you nowhere. It might get you reproved. It might get you judged. People think they can uh, quote a Scripture to God, and he has to do it. God is not a slave, and he's the Lord. And he does nothing against his character. He does nothing against his attributes. So he will be good to people. And then when they start being bad, he can stop being good to people. Oh, one thought before we go on. When the Gentile church was called and Paul speaking, he said that most of the Jews were cut off. The branch was cut off because of their rebellion. And, uh, and the severity of God was to punish them. And he said, I grafted you Gentiles in. And he said, and unless you continue in his goodness, you'll be cut off also. Uh, that sort of blows the theory of once saved, always saved. So he was saying, if I was that hard with the Jewish people after many generations, I could do the same to you. So be sure to stay in my goodness. That's the implication. And it was the apostle Paul who preached faith and grace who tells us this. And you read it in any translation, and you can't alter it. It says, if you continue in my grace, my goodness, or I will cut you off. God never threatens needlessly. If he says he's going to do something, he means it, and he will carry through with it. Some people, because they don't like certain scriptures, well, it really doesn't mean that. He's just giving you an example, and it means just what it says. And take the word for what it says when it's plain. If you start altering the word for your own doctrine or denomination or thought, you will be deceived. Just a matter of time. For when you resist the spirit of truth and the word of God, he'll send you a lying spirit. See, people don't understand that. They think they can play with the spirit of God. But the spirit of the Lord will not always strive with man. See? That's how come some people end up 
blaspheme in the Holy Spirit. That's why some people end up like King Saul, the anointing of the Spirit departed from him. And he was once anointed by God spiritually and physically. But when God got tired of testing him and he would not obey, it said the Spirit of the Lord departed from him and an evil spirit sent by the Lord terrorized him. He was past hope. And that's when he tried to drum up the Spirit and, and the Lord let Samuel come and reprove him. And Samuel had nothing good to say to him. He just warned him what was going to happen to him because of his rebellion. But it's interesting, Samuel wanted to know, why have you disquieted me? Why have you called me forth? And it's interesting, Saul tells the reason. He said, for the Lord does not speak to me in dreams or through prophets or the casting of the lots. Well, see, God had refused to listen to him. He wasn't messing with him anymore. So there are people who are twice dead and plucked up by the roots. It's a dangerous thing to fall into the hands of God of wrath. Uh, many backsliders come back to the Lord. Many, but if you persist for years and years, and then uh, you're hardened, and often that portion of you that even wants to be good doesn't want it anymore. See, it's a demonic influence, and you're going to find people who try to get right with God on their deathbed because they know they're going to die. And some of them just don't want to go to hell. Well, they're not going to be saved if they've been given the truth consistently and they've rejected the gospel. And if God saved them, he'd keep them around at least long enough to give a witness to his glory and his grace to that person. So there are very few people who have deathbed repentances. So we need to go back. If you continually strive against the Lord, he will harden himself. The scripture says through Paul, he said, I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful, and I will harden whom I will harden. But he never hardens a person until a person rebels and hardens toward him. He did it to Pharaoh. He did it to Saul. He did it to Balaam. See, these people consistently rebelled, and he got tired of messing with them. He did the same thing with Israel. They disobeyed God so much that he said, I'm not going to let you go into the promised land. You're going to die off, and your children will grow up, and they will go in. And you know, the next day they came back and said, we've decided, Moses, that we're going to go in. And Moses said, I wouldn't do it because it don't apply no more. And so God didn't change his mind. They changed their mind, but he got tired of messing with them. The scripture either symbolically or literally says they were tested 10 times, a full number like seven. And what he's talking about is, I brought you to a certain place, but once you cross that line, that's it. Once God shut the door on the ark, he wasn't offering grace to people. When the Lord returns as a king and judge, he's not offering salvation. He's coming to punish. And the people of the earth, the scripture says, will flee to the mountains and beg for the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. Even they know it's too late then, okay? So we need to understand, do not play with God's grace. Do not play with God's spirit. It will not work in the long run.
Okay, now we have verse 12. He says to the church, as to all of them, he who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God, and I will give him or write on him my new name. Well, he has a mouthful he's said here, huh? So he who overcomes, in this life he's talking about, I will make a pillar, a column, a fixture in God's temple. Well, I used to think, well, what does that mean? Well, first of all, to be made a column, it means you're not going to be moved anymore. You'll be fixed in God. There'll be no more temptation or possibility of falling. Once you've overcome, you don't have to be tested no more. And ultimately, the devil won't be around. The old nature, you will leave when you die or when you're rapture, if you're a Christian. The old nature, you have nothing that he can appeal to. And then you'll have the knowledge of what's happened, okay? And so he says, you'll be fixed. And I used to think, well, you'll be a pillar in the temple of God. What is this pillar? Well, later on in Revelations, it tells us. He said, there's no need of the temple, for the Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. Well, if we're a pillar in the temple of God, we're a pillar in Him. Wherever He is in the universe, as angels proceed, He's there. They have the full face of God wherever He's at. They don't need to be standing in heaven three feet from the front throne staring at Him. That's just one manifestation of the Father. And there may be times that happens. But Gabriel, when he appeared to the priest and told him when the priest disobeyed him about his mother bearing John the Baptist, he was insulted. And he said, I am Gabriel. He was a prince. He was like a prime minister. He was a high angel. He that stands in the presence of God. He didn't say, I stood in God's presence. He meant, I'm always in God's presence. So when angels are doing God's work, they don't lose the presence of God. Well, God fills the whole universe. It's just God is open to them. And Jehovah said to Moses, no man can see my face and live. But then the scripture tells us, and Jesus tells us, the angels always behold the face of the Father. Well, how can they always behold his face and be doing errands for him and work for him? See, so many people are locked into the physical. We're at a much lower level. We'll understand when we get to heaven, but there's some things that are far beyond our comprehension. So he who overcomes in this life, he will make a fixture in himself. He will be unmovable. He will be permanent. That's what it means. And God will write his name. Remember, when the Antichrist comes, he wants the people to have the mark of the beast, his name is represented on their forehead or hand. And if they receive it, they can never be saved. They're cursed of God. So evidently, God marks us in a way that is special. To one of the churches uh, later, he says he will give each person, uh, overcome a, a stone and a special name written on it that nobody else knows. See, this speaks of the intimacy of God. So it means that nobody Just you and God are going to know what that name is. So it's important to God. The person we worship, whom we serve, we are sealed by them. 
those who do not serve the Lord get the seal of the devil and the world, a proof that they are of that system. So Christ is saying here, you'll get my father's name, the city of here. It's showing where you belong and who you belong to. See, that's what it's saying. It's just a proof, a validation that you're his. And we are elevated to that position and given a part of the rewards in relationship. And so we see there's no distance from God. God is everywhere. He fills the universe. But many people say God is dead. Many people never feel him, and yet he's closer to them than their very breath because he's not close to them in relationship. And when they finally reject him and end the lake of fire, the scripture says there'll be an outer darkness. It means they'll be as far away in relationship and fellowship from God that is possible. That's what it means. So we're seeing he can shut himself off from people. And the Bible says they will experience the wrath of God forever. He will not think pleasant thoughts when he sees the smoke of their torment go up. He's not pitying them. It's too late to pity them. Once the decision's made, he pities the wicked and works with the wicked on earth. And he still, it says, if they don't follow him and they don't turn to him, they abide under his wrath. God can exercise both. He's not pleased. But he can offer them grace and mercy and goodwill. This is what the love of God is. When it says, for God sent his only begotten son to the world, that's the kind of love. It was not, though, a covenant love if they do not receive it. So God has good intentions and goodwill even toward his enemies. But he exercises anger and wrath against sin still. He has not changed. Let's take a break here.